0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, back here with my friend Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy, and I think
1: you mean back, and welcome back, and I don't quite know how to uh, say welcome back in in Italian, but you're going to tell me, and you're going to tell the audience why I just said what I said.
0: Yes, well, yes, I, we had a wonderful Ever Scholar program in Italy, which we had mentioned was going to happen over the last couple of weeks. Um, and it happened. And now I'm fluent in Italian so that I now can say buongiorno and arrivederci and okay. ciao. Um, But what is welcome back? I have no idea. But, uh, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Since I never had occasion to say it while I was in Italy, okay. I can tell okay. you all how to say just about any type of pasta. Um, Okay, but and any type of church as well. Uh, So but really, it was a fantastic experience, which I I want to get into in more detail later. Um, And as you know, every scholar is a sponsor of uh, America's Constitution. So we're grateful for that. And Boy, were we grateful for this trip! But anyway, I'm back here, and I'm, by I, the way, I'm having,
1: I'm, I'm having a mental picture of Fusili
0: Jerry, but uh, but I digress. Yes, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that was a Seinfeld episode. Yes. Yeah, but and we, I'm proud of the fact that we were able to get up our podcast episodes while, well, notwithstanding this trip, and here we are back again. So, uh, and what are we greeted with? Our favorite topic <laughs> or unfavorite topic? Uh, Ex President uh, Donald Trump and his legal misadventures. So there's a lot to say about the uh, indictment of of ex-president Trump. And, of course, you might say, well, you already said it, because we talked about about indicting an ex-president, things like that, when he uh, had his encounter with New York State, Um, and that's ongoing, and there may be more in Georgia, who knows. Um, But this is different. Um, it's federal, it's different nature of uh, different types of charges, more related in some ways to the presidency than the previous charges, I would say. Um, and it raises some issues that are similar, but many that are, that are different. So we're going to get into it. And I, I believe that this will not be repetitive, that we're actually going to, uh, gain the benefit of Professor Amara's particular expertise Uh, in in many respects, so I'm looking forward to it actually. I guess we should start with what has been on people's minds over the last few days after the indictment, which has to do with the judge that was appointed. Um, Judge Cannon, whom we heard about earlier, various rulings um, having to do with special master and the role of the, and whether the Department of Justice had the ability to conduct certain searches, um, and some of her rulings weren't met with approval at uh, in this forum and they certainly weren't met with approval in the by the appellate court. Um, so anyway, uh, her reputation precedes her I suppose um, so there's there's things to say about the selection of the judge though I mean given her her misadventures earlier, one might say, well, what is the Department of Justice doing you know pursuing a strategy uh to the extent that it has discretion that results in the same judge um so some of this comes down to the selection of venue um so are you critical of the selection of venue akil or do you think it's appropriate
1: this is a set of offenses centered on mar-a-lago on documents that were improperly it is alleged and seeing is believing we we, we have actually photographic evidence that were improperly stored uh, improperly secured in merrill not have been there in the first place that's the center of gravity so to speak of the offense then there were cover-up charges conspiracy charges obstruction charges of of, of various sorts and those obstructions uh, took place in florida i am not saying that the entirety of the transactions at issue occurred in Florida and only in Florida. Welcome to the world. You use a phone and there's another jurisdiction involved. You're right now in New Jersey and I'm in Connecticut. So in the modern world, it's often the case that there are different elements or, or different components of a transaction that spill over across a state and district lines and the constitution uh, and the actually in two places talks about where the crime occurred and talks about the proper venue that is the location of the trial in connection to where the crime occurred and both of these texts originally were about federal and only federal cases and then we can talk about some complexities about incorporating some of this against states because one provision is an article three and it's about federal courts and federal crimes and federal venue and the other is the sixth amendment here's article three it's section two the last paragraph the trial of all crimes except in cases of impeachment Shall be by jury, okay, fine, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes shall have been committed, okay. And, and now you and I'm saying, oh, but but maybe the crime was committed in more than one state, and Article Three would give you a choice there, and we'll talk about why this was a proper choice. But I would say the legally better choice. But then they go on. But when not committed within any state, the trial should be at such place or places as the Congress. May by law have directed. So what do they mean by that? Well, imagine a a crime that occurs on the high seas, on a federal ship, or a crime that occurs in a federal territory, or in the District of Columbia, or something, a a national park, you know, uh, depending on the circumstances, arguably it's not in, it may not be in the state, but but definitely territories, high seas. So that's Article three. And it says, oh, you're supposed to have a trial where the crime occurred Mm -hmm. okay where the crime shall have been committed and they use that sort of uh, past perfect uh, tense or whatever because we're not supposed to have exposed factor laws the crime you know happens before the trial unlike in alice in wonderland the queen i think at one point says the punishment is today the trial is tomorrow and the crime you know of course comes last of all
0: yeah, you know, like Alice the episode, like the movie *Minority Report*, where you you're charged <laughs> with crimes you're going to commit. Yes,
1: and Alice says, "But what if the crime never occurs?" And McQueen says, "That would be all the better, wouldn't it?" <laughs> okay, <laughs> so the crime has to occur first, and then you have the trial. So this is connected to rules about um, retroactivity and ex post facto, as I said. Now, the Sixth Amendment adds something. It adds within the state, the district. It says. In all prosecu- criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district where the crime shall have been committed, The district, uh, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law. So again, this idea that we want to have things decided in advance here, not just the substantive rules of criminality and then the crime itself I'm happening before the trial, but rules about how to divide state into different districts. Okay, so I've just said, uh, talked about, well, what happens if it's not within any state? And the Constitution addresses that. It says, well, then Congress should decide. But now, what happens if a crime occurs in more than one state? And certain aspects of it may have occurred outside Florida. But I'm saying, no, if you're playing it straight, the center of gravity of this offense is. Florida and and you, you might say, well what does center of gravity mean here say well in, in part where the events took place where the witnesses are, where the evidence is, this is all about Florida and it's not about which place maximizes the chances of the government winning. So I think the government here is playing it very because that that wouldn't be Florida That would be DC because DC is a very heavily, Democratic location venue. Andy, can we look up right now what percentage of voters in D.C. voted for Donald Trump either in 2016 or 2020? I'm guessing it's single districts, which you don't see generally in free, you know, societies. I think Donald Trump, I'm guessing, got less than 10 percent of the vote, um, yeah. both in 2016 and in 2020. Well,
0: in 2020, he got 5.4% of the vote. (laughs) Okay, so there you go. And in 2016, he got 4.09% of the vote. Okay. Although, interestingly, Uh, Hillary Clinton only got 91% of the vote. (laughs) So
1: So if the prosecution is just trying to maximize its chances of victory, then you'd pick... DC, but what legitimacy would, have, would that have if you get a conviction? If people say you're playing fast and loose, you know it's maybe technically permissible, but this is a Florida offense. Well, okay. I think I, I mean, think, mean it's, a, it's a federal offense that, that occurred in Florida.
0: Right. So you're you know you're bringing up so these are two different considerations. One is the the technical requirements of the Constitution. Another is legitimacy of the outcome, eventual outcome, in the eyes of the American people. It's really, I would say, somewhat less of a constitutional question. Um, and you know, there, there there's a lot. Of, having just studied Machiavelli while we we're in in Italy, there's a, it's, it's, it's a little more complicated than that, I think, when you talk about legitimacy. But I think that that's, you know, and it's an interesting point. Um, you know, you hear a. Donald Trump and his his followers screaming bloody murder, this is a conspiracy, this is, you know, wep- Speaker McCarthy had his, you know, this is weaponization of, of, the, of government, you know, things like that. That seems to the, be the major cry. Not that he didn't do it. You don't hear much of that um, other than from Trump himself. Um, or even that this is, it's okay to do it. You don't hear that you just hear that it's inappropriate for the DOJ to have behaved in this manner. So, you know, I think you, your general opinion of Merrick Garland has been that he's a more or less a straight shooter. Uh, wouldn't you say? Yes. Okay. So if we look at the history of the case so far, when we talk about the use of the levers of the, of, of justice, what's your evaluation of the department of justice's performance in that regard?
1: Well, remember, Merrick Garland didn't make the main decisions. Mm-hmm. He might have, in the end, given final approval, but he turfed this over to uh, a special prosecutor, special so, counsel, um, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, um, right. and 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 he did that precisely so, so as to say, listen, you know, the main decisions here weren't made by by me. I had to sign off on them, but they were made by someone who's basically who's a civil servant type, who is a career professional prosecutor, who basically
0: should not be seen as a Democrat or a Republican, but just um, a civil servant. So I take it then from what you've said then that you f- that you feel that the Department of Justice has played it straight, or the gov- let's just say the government as a whole has played it straight. Is that correct?
1: Yes, and some of these regulations about bringing in independent counsels or special prosecutors um, were drafted uh, long ago by our friend, Neil Tatiel. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they are operative, whether there's a Republican president and Republican attorney general, Bill Barr, Donald Trump and Bill Barr, or um, a Democrat administration, Joe Biden and, and Merrick Garland. And the best answer to these skeptics, you know, will be, in in my view, listen. The jury that convicted is a jury in a very purple place, not you know um, the deepest blue place in America, which is T. C. Mm-hmm. It's bluer than New Haven, Connecticut, probably. And boy, that's saying something. And as it turns out, we're going to talk about this a lot. The the judge, at least preliminarily, who's been assigned to this case, is not just a Republican appointee, but a Trump appointee. And if you get a conviction then you're able to look pe- these people in the eye and uh, who are complaining and saying, this persuaded 12 jurors in a purple state and it was presided over by a judge who, in fact, was appointed by none other than Donald Trump. Let's just take impeachment. I know impeachment is different because it's a political offense with a political uh, p- punishment judged by politicians. And it's paradigmatically about a sitting office holder. We've had episodes about how ex-officers can be in certain circumstances impeachment. But let's just take impeachment just for a minute. What does impeachment require? At the end of the day, two-thirds of the Senate. What does that as a practical matter mean? That means that you're not going to be convicted and removed from office, disqualified perhaps from any future office. That's not going to happen unless two-thirds of the Senate votes against you. And that means, as a practical matter, some of the people in your own party are doing that because ordinarily one party doesn't have to, neither um, party has two thirds of the Senate. And and I think that's a feature and not a bug. That's actually a good thing. It helps con- contribute to an, an overall legitimacy of the system when we can look in the eye of the president's Supporters and friends, diehard loyalists and say, listen, you know, this is people in your own party who, in, in effect, were the, were the swing voters here, the, the decisive voters. And if Donald Trump is convicted in Florida, we can say the same thing. Look, you know, this is a state that actually leans a little bit red. And Miami is actually itself within that state. The district within the state is um, increasingly red actually, or or decreasingly blue, at least. And the the judge, at least for now, is someone who's not just a Republican, but a Trump appointee. And if
0: they convict, then you can't say it was rigged. I think, you know, you'd have to ask the question of the people that are screaming now. You know, if you're not complaining about the actual charges, but the mere fact of bringing charges, is there anything that you can, that you would consider legitimate to bring against uh, someone as, as, a, as a charge, as an ex-president, to charge an ex-president with? Um, you know, that, that is it just the fact that he was the president and, the, and, the, and that the president now is of the other party that means you cannot bring any charges no matter what? You know, and so and I think that's a ridiculous question to, to ask. Frankly, or um, so, because obviously you, there are things that you could charge him with, um, and then it becomes a question of, okay, is the process legitimate in, in the terms of the uh, standards that you've set, and um, are the offenses of sufficient gravity? So I, you know, uh, we'll find out, and uh, on one, and then on the other, we'll just—it's a matter of opinion. But again, I don't hear a lot of people saying that. Well. Essentially, he's charged with what's tantamount to stealing documentation of nuclear secrets and lying about his possession of them, and conspiring with uh, with others to to prevent return of the documents. So those are, to me, very serious charges. We're talking
1: in one word about trust. We use the word legitimacy a whole bunch of times, but another related word is trust. And I'm saying in our deeply polarized world. Many Republicans don't trust Democrats and Democrats don't trust Republicans. This podcast tries to actually play it straight. We, we have, um as guests regularly, Republicans and regularly Democrats. And sometimes I side with Republicans on the court or in the country and sometimes with Democrats. But if it's a trust issue, you see, what I'm saying is Republicans are unlikely to trust a dc jury and they're more likely i think to trust a unanimous verdict in florida Um, and dc is just almost unique in this even though i think you could have made a technical argument that the venue work is constitutionally and legally permissible in dc but you could get 12 democrats on a jury pretty easily. I, I just have to do the math, actually, you know, 0.95 raised to the 12th power, you know, one minus that would be the odds. But you could very easily get, you know, 11. I think but that's but maybe- not,
0: not really the way to calculate the odds, because what would, because that's if you just pick people out of a hat. But in fact, Correct. there are challenges, peremptory and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, so the point is that they would be if if the jurors are picked randomly, they would be few enough Republicans uh, in the pool that the uh, prosecution could probably peremptorily challenge every Republican and get away. And, and there just wouldn't be enough left. So nice would, point. If they
1: knew the party affiliation and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. You're absolutely right, Andy. Mm-hmm. So all you're, you're making my case for me. Right. Um, well, that it's from a certain point of view, too easy In DC. And maybe we're okay with that when it's an oath keeper who's on trial or a proud boy. But when it's the former president of the United States who's running for the office again, who's the de facto head of one of the two major parties in America, that might not quite do the trick.
0: I mean, I guess the next question to ask is okay, you want to have legitimacy for the reasons that you said. But then isn't there some responsibility on the part of the Republicans to actually pay attention to the the legitimacy of it and to not, you know, because if they just, no matter what you do, you act, you know, in this way where the chance of getting this judge, who I think everyone agrees would be from the point of view of increasing the likelihood of convicting him, the the last judge you would want. Um, There might be other reasons that you would want this judge, as you've alluded to. But from that point of view, you wouldn't want this judge. And the, the New York Times read an article explaining why it was very likely that this was going to be the judge because um, there were only seven no, judges. Not very likely, do you think? that Maybe it was a 20% chance, something no, like that? No, no, because what they said was hmm. there are only seven judges that were eligible. And of those okay. seven judges, I believe three were had senior status. And of the three senior status judges, they had all used up Their quota for the year of cases, so they were not going to be eligible. So that left four. And then they were, uh, of those four, there was like one that was there was some reason that they would not be eligible. And then, Hmm. and then, and then there was, I thought
1: there were five and then she was one of five. And then there was an increased
0: weight that would be given because of the fact that she had heard the case earlier. So, hmm. so it wound up being like greater than 50%, I believe, chance that she was going to be the judge. So it was, how interesting, yeah, very interesting. So, and they had to know that and they, and they chose it anyway. So anyway, all right. So, so we could say, well, but the point is that because they're playing it as they're not,
1: putting a thumb on the scale for that. I'm saying that's a consequence. What they're doing is saying what's actually just from a strict legal point of view, the better place for venue. It's the center of gravity of the offense. That's the spirit as well as the letter of not just one, but two constitutional provisions that are all about trying a crime where it happened. And let me give you, since this is a Marcus constitution, and it's what I always do. Let me give you the historical backdrop of all of this. Okay. Andy, this is in the Declaration of Independence, because actually it goes back to a colonial controversy called the Boston Massacre. And that's chapter two of the words that made us, which I have not planned in the last 30 seconds. So government officials, soldiers, Customs Office soldiers shoot into a crowd in Boston in 1770, I think it's March. We call that the Boston Massacre. That, that's a spin, actually, that label, as opposed to you know the Boston tragedy, the the, the Boston mishap, the Boston accident. No, it's massacre that year. That's taking a certain position about intent and all the rest. These officers were tried in Boston. That's where you know they did it. That was the center of gravity of the offense. That's where the witnesses were. That's where the blood spilled that's that's where people died you know that's what they pulled the triggers everything happened right there in Boston it happened within about 100 yards less of uh, the old state house which is where my book begins act 1 scene 1 and i was just there actually a couple of weeks ago right on that hallowed ground and the trial occurred in Boston cuz that's w- where the offense occurred now after that and john adams actually very famously defended the government officials the soldiers and most of them were acquitted in fact by a jury and that acquittal had a certain credibility for the colonists because they're saying well actually whom do we trust we trust you know a, a local jury and they heard the evidence and they decided that there wasn't proof beyond reasonable doubt that it was really intentional as opposed to kind of accidental for most of the defendants now what did the brits do in response they passed a law that the Americans promptly dubbed intolerable acts. The Brits called them coercive acts. And this is after the Boston Tea, uh, Tea Party three years later. And in this statute, well, one, one of the uh, coercive acts, the intolerable acts, the Brits called the Administration of Justice Act. <laughs> and the Americans called it the Murderers Act. And here's what the act said. Ah, when British officials commit alleged crimes, allegedly crimes in America, we're going to move the venue, it's going to be tried in jolly old England. Okay, Now that's actually pro-defendant, you know, the defendants that were government officials um, here would be very happy with that, but the Americans, you know, were outraged by this, the Declaration of Independence condemns it as a mock trial system, because they deeply believe that, um, and we talked about just and a last episode with Guido Calabresi, public law versus private law. Um, criminal law is public law. It's an offense against not just the victim, but the community. And the community that's offended against should be the community that sits in judgment with a local jury. Um, the framers believed in all that. And, and that local jury is, in the words of Article 3 and the Sixth Amendment, and that should be coming in principle from the place where the crime occurred. Now, I've actually just slid a little bit. Venue is actually where you try the case, thing called vicinage is where the jury comes from. Usually they're one and the same thing, uh, venue and vicinage.
0: you know, this, uh, this, this uh, custom, if you will, or this practice of uh, trying to get your soldiers or your citizens tried on your your own territory, even if they commit crimes elsewhere, which yeah. is what Britain did here, has a notorious history uh, after that. Um, it became, in China, known as extraterritoriality, and it was part of the so-called unequal treaties, and it, it was a real thorn in the side of the Chinese for many years, and the U.S. engaged in this as well, by the way. And they, mm-hmm. they actually they signed a treaty in 1943, uh, the Sino-American Treaty for the re- Relinquishment of Extraterritorial Rights in China, also known as the Sino-American New Equal Treaty, there's that you know equal word mm-hmm. again, um, mm-hmm. and it uh, wasn't until then that they that they relinquished these rights which that they insisted on back in the late 19th century. So, so the point is that the U.S. is not above this kind of misbehavior um, as well. So, just a little side that. Well, and we can plug Everscholar again because
1: you know a ton about China because of all sorts of Ever, Everscholar programs that have taught you a ton.
0: Right. Well, indeed, and, and, but this is also knowing something about our own country, that we're, we're capable yeah. of this behavior ourselves. Um, but anyway, okay, so back to uh, Miami <laughs> and not Shanghai and not Bedminster, New Jersey, and not Washington, D.C. Um, as the site of this trial. And so as a result, okay, we've got this judge, Eileen Cannon, and at least for the beginning, and it looks like probably for the entirety of the trial, the way things are uh, being depicted in the, in the papers now. So there are some people that say, okay, she's the judge, but she shouldn't be because she's sitting in judgment over the man that appointed her. Um, and is that appropriate? Uh, and she's has a history of ruling in his favor and being slapped down by the appellate division or the by the appellate court um, so that she's demonstrated a bias perhaps with these rulings um, so we here we have the Im- implication that she's not objective because of the person that appointed her and then the implication of bias because of her actual behavior those are two different uh, questions but they're perhaps they're related. Um, so uh, what's your reaction to these, uh, these considerations? Yeah. And there's maybe even
1: a third and, and, and fourth um, argument uh, that we could identify. So let's just take the broadest argument. The claim is she can't be impartial. She should recuse herself because she was appointed by Donald Trump. And I think that alone is way too sweeping. That proves too much. Um, and I'll give you two or three uh, reasons, maybe why that's so. I don't think we'll get up to eighteen, but mm-hmm. uh, but let's hope. Um, first, um, um, if uh, you have to recuse, and, and let's even make it broader, because she was picked by a Republican. Okay, well, everyone is picked by a Republican or a Democrat. And if you have to recuse because you're picked by a Republican, well, then why shouldn't you also have to recuse if you're picked by a Democrat? Not just when a Democrat is on trial, but when a Republican is is on trial. So now everyone has to recuse. So that seems a little too broad. And you could say, no, it's actually not about a, uh, her being picked by a Republican president, but by Trump. Well, that paints way too broadly tar[s] everyone with too broad a brush. Let me say very clearly now that some of the judges that I think are the best judges in the country are Trump-appointed judges. He, um, he nominated them. They were confirmed by a Senate, and then he commissioned them. And many of them have ruled against Donald Trump's administration. And that has a special legitimacy, you see, among the Trumpies because stephanus Bebis on the Third circuit one of my former students i'm very proud of him clerked on the supreme court he's now on the third circuit he was a professor at at university of pennsylvania and a government attorney before being on the court of u.s court of appeals for the third circuit which is philadelphia-based there were lawsuits brought after the 2020 election basically saying this was stolen this was fraudulent blah 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 Sidney powell kinds of stuff and he not only ruled against those claims he did so with very sharp language saying, this is baloney. You know, there's no evidence here whatsoever. He did not mince words. He's a good writer. He's a very good writer. And in my view, a very straight shooter. And that had, frankly, more legitimacy or or power, persuasive power, perhaps, than if those very same words had come from a judge appointed by Barack Obama, let's say. So I'm just picking stuff in this beepus, but let me tell you about my friend Bill Nardini. I was on the merit selection committee, he's a federal judge, appellate judge in connecticut and by the way these are both people that i just talked to this week in, in connection with some other stuff and i was on the merit selection committee and he was the most meritorious and we didn't take into account you know whether he gave money to this party or that one or whether he was a political operative or she was for 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 this group or that group just bar none best um, one of my favorite students at yale law school as was Stephanus Peebus. I believe I wrote clerkship letters of recommendation for both of them. They both clerked for the U.S. Supreme Court. That means that you actually had good grades, that you actually are a good student. And many of the courses, especially back in the day, were blind graded. So it's not what the, the teachers had. It's just, you know, are you good in law? And Bill Nardini is a Trump appointee, one of the best young judges we have in America. Uh, let me take Louis Lyman, another one of my former students. Any Democrat would have loved to appoint Louis Lyman, very strongly backed by people like Chuck Schumer. He's a federal district judge in New York City. His father, Arthur Lyman, stalwart member of the Democratic Party, general counsel in the Iran, uh, on the Democratic side, um, um, in the Iran-Contra hearings against Oliver North and others. Philip Bobbitt was an assistant in that or was uh, involved in that. Roy Altman, who is a judge in uh, Miami, federal district judge. I think if the roulette wheel had had bounced a different way, he he might have been uh, the person designated. He's a Trump appointee. One of my uh, former students, one of my favorite students. Andy, when you and I were in Miami, I stayed a little bit longer and did some other things. And, and one of the things I did, um, we did some things together. And then I did an event organized by Roy Altman. This coming fall, I think I'm doing three different events with Judge Altman. One in in Miami, one in Birmingham, Alabama, and one in upstate New York. This is all his imitation. I really respect the guy. He's, a, he's whip smart and just as honest as the day is long. So so I think it's ridiculous, frankly, to say that the, the audience knows that I have said nice things about members of the United States Supreme Court that were picked by Donald Trump. So that can't be a basis for recusal, just that you were picked by Trump. And part of the reason structurally see that can't be the reason is that you have life tenure and you are free to rule against the president or the party that picked you. And now let me give you, um, Andy, some examples in American history, if I may. So I mean, this is just on the first point. Well, you know, you can't trust a Trump judge with a Trump related case. So Let's take one of the um, landmark cases in American history, the Youngstown steel seizure case. And there you had an overwhelmingly Democratic appointed bench. I think eight of the nine justices had been appointed by Franklin Roosevelt and or Harry Truman, maybe all nine, maybe actually one of them was a Republican because uh, I think Truman crossed the aisle in one of his appointments or something, but, but they ruled against Harry Truman. And one of the ones who did, uh, we'll talk about this maybe again in another context, was Robert Jackson. And Robert Jackson had been Attorney General of the United States and Solicitor General of the United States, and in that capacity had said all sorts of pro-executive power stuff because he was defending the executive branch. He's the architect, for example, of the Lend-Lease program in which Roosevelt, without getting a law from Congress, gave certain destroyers and military assets to the Brits who desperately needed them. Um, This is before America was fully in the war. And Congress hadn't clearly authorized that. and uh, there were a lot of isolations to Congress, and you might not have been able to get a statute through. Um, but Jackson took the position that the existing statutes and customs and practices permitted this sort of executive action as, as part of uh, the commander-in-chief power and, and the, the power over the federal assets. You get to manage them and deploy them in various ways. All of these Robert Jackson statements as attorney general in various uh, Opinions that had been released in various oral arguments as a solicitor general are being quoted in the Youngstown seal seizure case by the current solicitor general saying, listen, Robert Jackson is our authority for doing this and this and this. And Justice Jackson writes a very famous concurring opinion. He says, well, Robert Jackson isn't much of an authority at all because Robert Jackson wasn't Justice Jackson. That's not a judicial precedent. I was a lawyer for one side, and now I'm a judge. I put the robes on. I'm a different branch, different role. Oh, and by the way, I have life tenure. So, you know, um, as attorney general, I I, I serve at the president's pleasure. And solicitor general, I serve at the president's pleasure. You know, now I just call it straight. So that's Robert Jackson. Now I'm going to tell you about Robert Jackson's law clerk, and I'm going to tell you about that law clerk's law clerk.
0: Yeah, so just as a sort of an analogy, it's not exactly the same, but we like to refer to the TV series The Crown. And there, you know, there's a a scene when Elizabeth becomes queen and she's talking to her grandmother. And her grandmother says to her that, uh, you know, Elizabeth Mountbatten you know ceased to exist and now mm-hmm. it, she is Elizabeth Regina and her she, you know the mm-hmm. her responsibilities are completely different her methods of mm-hmm. making decisions are are completely different and uh, it's mm-hmm. similar to the no attorney jackson no longer exists now there's yes. justice jackson now let me tell you about justice jackson's most famous law clerk his name
1: is William Rehnquist, and i and he be, he was a justice Uh, and later Chief Justice. And I've been very critical of many of the things that William Rehnquist did on the bench. Here's one thing that I always praise him for. He recused himself in the Nixon tapes case. And you can say, well, that's totally inconsistent, you know, with what you said, because you're arguing against recusal." But what he recused himself, not because he was Richard Nixon's appointee. Three other justices were Richard Nixon's appointee, and they all sat. Oh, and they all ruled against the person who had put them on the court. Chief Justice Warren Burger, and Justice Harry Blackman, and Justice Lewis Powell. They all sat. They didn't recuse themselves just because there was a case involving the person who made them justice or chief justice. So then what but about Rehnquist, Justice Jackson's former law clerk? He recused himself because this was a case brought against people in the justice department itself including the attorney general john mitchell and the world didn't quite know how much rot there actually was in the justice department but they did know that the former head of the justice department the chief law enforcement uh, uh, officer in america john mitchell was under indictment and so given that he thought Ordinary people, you know, may not know that I wasn't personally involved in this little pocket of the Justice Department or that one, given that the Justice Department, that the head of it is implicated in this case, appearance of impropriety, I'm actually going to sit this one out. I think that was the right decision. And I praise William Rehnquist for this every year because I teach legal ethics pervasively and I criticize many other things. William uh, Rehnquist is, but it's not, recusal isn't merely who appointed you, because I also praise, just like I praise Robert Jackson, Berger and Blackman and Powell, who ruled against the very president who had appointed them. Good for them. That's in the Robert Jackson tradition. Okay, I've told you now about Robert Jackson and his most famous law clerk, William Rehnquist. Now let me tell you about William Rehnquist's most famous Law clerk, John Roberts, current Chief Justice of the United States. John Roberts was put on the bench by a Republican president, George W. Bush. And in several of the biggest cases in his life, politically charged, he actually has sided with the Democrats. Not always, not even most of the time, but he's a straight shooter. And he was a straight shooter in the Sibelius case upholding Obamacare. He was the only Republican justice to join the the, the democrats and uh, to uphold a major democratic program Barack obama's trademark program um, obamacare the affordable care act and he did the same thing involving the same set of issues in a case called king versus burwell and they did it again upholding obamacare for the third time joined again by basically the libs the democrats and a case called california versus texas in the trump assuming uh, excuse me in the trump census case He ruled against a Republican president. So, And in all of that, he's in the tradition of Rehnquist at his best and Robert Jackson at his best. And now let me tell you about one final person who thinks about Robert Jackson. His name is Brett Kavanaugh. And when he was a judge on the D.C. circuit, he wrote a little essay. He gave a little lecture uh, at Marquette. And the lecture in part was about how an, a former executive branch official who's now become a judge should, should think about his or her job. And he's talking about himself, of course, because he was a former executive branch official, and then he became a judge on the D.C. Circuit. He gave this lecture, and, and here's what he says. Because Robert Jackson, he says, oh, he's my role model. Here's what he says. Prior White House experience also helps, I think, when judges need to show some backbone and fortitude in those cases when the independent judiciary must stand up to the president and not be intimidated by the mystique of the presidency. I think of Justice Robert Jackson, of course, as the role model for all of us. And he means himself, of course, all of us, executive branch lawyers turned judges we all walk in the long shadow of justice jackson i was asked if i wanted to comment on then judge kavanaugh's essay and i did and we'll put it all up on the the website i wrote a little um, commentary and it was all about my title was walking in the long shadow of justice jackson and one of the reasons that i thought that Brett Kavanaugh and Judge Kavanaugh would be a good justice, as he seemed to be very aware of just this issue and trying to be signaling to people, oh, I'm no longer Elizabeth Montbatten, Mont- 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 Bat- Mont- I'm Queen Elizabeth. I'm no longer executive branch attorney, Brett Kavanaugh. I'm Judge Brett Kavanaugh, and I'm part of an independent judiciary that has to show some backbone, even against the branch that put me on the court, And, you know, presumably the party that put me on the court or the person that put me on the court. I thought, actually, that essay on then Judge Kavanaugh's, um, of then Judge Kavanaugh's, was very good portent for what a Justice Kavanaugh might be. And, Andy, I think we're going to talk about this in in a future episode, but just last week, John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, an important voting rights case out of Alabama, a case called um, Milligan versus versus Allen Allen or Allen Allen versus.
0: Allen versus Milligan.
1: Allen Allen versus Milligan joined the Libs, much to the light, actually, of the Democratic Party. It was five to four. And both of those votes were necessary for the outcome. And and whether you agree with Chief Justice Roberts or not, with Justice Kavanaugh or not, they weren't hacks. They weren't pauls. They weren't just party people. Good for them. It's what I hoped for
0: and frankly predicted. Okay. And what about the so that's A pretty comprehensive uh addressing of that although by which you mean long-winded in the fashion (laughs) you know i'm listening to it and i'm and and i'm putting it in the context of what you were saying earlier about legitimacy um that you know it's uh, that there's a certain legitimacy when you on the part of the justice department when they or the special counsel when when he chooses to file in a jurisdiction that could result in him getting a judge that might be hostile to some of the things that he uh, thinks should take place during during the trial, um, and he's doing it because, although not because he's seeking legitimacy necessarily in that way. In other words, not that he wanted to, this judge, but rather because it's the thing that he's supposed to do because that's where the locus of of wrongdoing, you know, took place uh, in his view. Okay, fine, but still, you know, you're saying, well, this Republican judge, you know, ruled, uh, you know, ruled against a Republican cause. And this gives it greater legitimacy than if it were a a judge appointed by President Obama. But really, it seems to me what you're saying is, it's not exactly right, I think, because um, the point is that the life tenure gives them independence. Mm-hmm. Not that Republicans have independence. So if it were a a, a judge appointed by President Obama... That judge also has life tenure and also yes. should be respected, and and there's no so the point is that you in a way that the party affiliation not that it's irrelevant, but that one can be objective in a criminal overseeing a criminal case in particular. I think, um, regardless of the party that 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 appointed you. So if it were a, a judge appointed by a Democratic president, that would also be legitimate, if if you are correct, because what you're saying here is that the total history of the judiciary is one that can lead one to conclude that there is legitimacy in judicial appointment. Yes, and Robert Jackson was a Democrat, of
1: course. And what I'm also saying, and I'm not saying they'll always do you proud. Uh, Sometimes, oh, they'll disappoint you, maybe Mm -hmm. most of the time. But what I'm saying is, They're not, I'm agreeing that they're not pure politicians in robes. But now you said something really interesting. You said, oh, but it's about life tenure. It's not just about the the robe itself. And right you are. So I want to just do a couple of, of riffs on that. One is... Yeah, as an academic of a certain sort, I understand that life tenure, um, in certain situations, you know, can be a very good thing. You know, um, you ought to try it someday. Okay, uh, I, I what uh, works for me. Um, joking aside, um, here's a big point that you're making. If you don't need to run for re-election, oh, even if you were an elected official, it's an effect like having life tenure. If you're, imagine. Mitt Romney, and this is your last term, and you don't need to worry, especially in today's world, about being primaried from the extreme, from the extreme left, if you're a Democrat, from the extreme right, if you're Republican. And indeed, we do see more judge-like behavior, more independence on the part, for example, the the impeachment trials from the, judge, the, the judges, and I was saying in that case, they're the senators, um, or it could be a House member who are not seeking reelection, and which is in effect like having life tenure of a certain sort. You just don't have, need to worry about, um, in today's world, especially a primary base, which is typically much more extreme.
0: Yeah, than, you see that um, in the movie America's Lincoln, whole. you know, where he goes, he's going after lame duck uh, congressmen to try to get the Thirteenth Amendment ratified before the new Congress comes in. You do
1: see
0: that. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but the difference there is he's in
0: part saying, I can I can help them, you this way right. and that way. <laughs> yeah, I, right, I, I, right. I can get you a job. Yes, no, that's true. But uh, although sometimes they also just appeal to to their uh, their opinions. They they, they get to, to some people, they say, we know you're really against slavery. Um, yes. You know, so. yes, sometimes you're just freed up to do what you really want to do. Yeah, like Adam Kinzinger yeah. or somebody like that who, you know, has acted or, well, yeah, okay. Um, All right, so so fine. Now, the other thing that we talked about. Big shout out to
1: uh, Peter Meyer, um, whose dad, Hank Meyer, is a a dear friend of mine and I think listens to the podcast. He was one of the 10 Republican congresspersons who um, voted to impeach uh, Trump. And his father, Hank, is actually
0: on the board of trustees of the National Constitution Center. So the other thing that I mentioned about um, about Judge Cannon was the fact that she had made past rulings against uh, in favor of President Trump, which were ex President Trump, which were considered outrageous, which were criticized on this podcast, uh, and which were slapped down in strong terms by the uh, by the appellate court. So, is there any relevance there that that might? be a demonstration of bias, uh, that, that, uh, should cause her to recuse or, uh, is there any relevance at all there? There is relevance. I'm
1: not sure bias
0: is the best
1: category, um, because anyone can make a mistake. I think some of these mistakes were egregious mistakes. Um, but that still isn't quite the same thing as being biased. Um, Candidly, my bigger concern is not so much bias as whether, she, you know she's ready for a case of this magnitude. She's only been a judge for three years. This is a, a very complicated case, lots of issues. And it involves, and some of the issues involve classified information. There's a special statute called SIPA about the classified inform- It's about the classified information and how it's to be used in court. If she had, she, I think earlier had been a prosecutor in the Justice Department. If she had been in the Justice Department, she wouldn't have enough, have had enough seniority to actually uh, prosecute this case. And one of the ideas of life tenure is you, you can grow and, and learn on the job and, and, and get better and better o- over time, um, with more experience. She, and she doesn't have that. So. It, she's not the one that i would have ideally picked now does that mean she has to recuse herself for bias i'm not sure that's so is there an appearance of impropriety just because she, she was slapped down before i, I don't think that's quite right she, she could choose i think to step down saying i actually think this is uh that i i, I haven't prepared enough Um, And there are other people on my court who actually are better prepared for all the the complexities that this because they're more senior that this case will present. Now, that's an awkward thing to say. I'm not. And if you were going to do that, maybe you should just taking yourself out of consideration from the beginning. Would I prefer Someone else? Yeah, you've heard, I've already said he's going to hate me when he hears this. Roy Altman, thanks a lot, pal. I thought you were my friend because, you know, I don't know. No judge actually probably really wants all the headaches that this is going to cause for the, the judge. Unfortunately, maybe even for the judge's family. So my bigger concern isn't that she was biased in that earlier case, but just that she was so wrong on so many issues, not understanding, for example, the difference between presidents and ex-presidents when it comes to, for example, executive privilege. Executive privilege is about the existing president. And it's not about an ex-president for two reasons, one, because they're no longer president, and second, because someone else is. And that's the person, you know, that I, I should be making the decisions about what's classified and what's not, what should be declassified and, and what, what shouldn't, um, what's privileged and what shouldn't be. It's about the current president, not the ex-president. To have gotten that one wrong, that was such a big thing to get wrong, it, it doesn't, to me, necessarily go to, to bias because I have no reason to cast dispersions on her, her integrity or character. But I do think Wow. She was whoppingly wrong. And actually she didn't quite get the hint the first time around. I think it went up to the court of appeals once and she kind of persevered or persisted in certain ways and had to get be slapped down. I think a a second time. And that, that wasn't a good look.
0: You know, speaking of not a good look, I mean, we're talking about legitimacy, you know, this, I could see scenarios that would be very damaging. So suppose the trial takes place. She's the judge She makes a series of outrageous rulings that everyone thinks is ridiculous that is, you know, taking a reasonably objective view of it. Um, And then he gets a Trump gets acquitted and it's perceived that this happens in large part because of these rulings. And then let's say, you know, Trump gets elected uh god forbid but anyway and then he appoints her to a higher position uh, you know to to a promotion talk about you know the absence of legitimacy that would really stink you know well yeah that, that, that's, that, those are a lot of if, if ifs, no no I, let me just I which know. of them do you believe couldn't happen
1: you well, know, well hold so. on here's here's one thing that i want <laughs> yes. to highlight yeah um uh two things that Life tenure isn't complete independence because to quote, um, the boss, um, poor men want to be rich, rich men want to be King, you know, King isn't happens, owns everything. So, um, judge want to be justice, um, or trial judge want to be appellate judge, appellate judge want to be justice, justice want to be chief justice. Okay. You may remember one of my reasons for the 18, 18 reasons on term limits is, that we'd have a rotating chief justiceship so that existing justices aren't in effect auditioning for the chief job and and sucking up to a president, hoping that he'll make them chief when the current chief dies or steps down. So even life tenure isn't uh, perfect because you maybe are uh, angling for uh, some higher position. That's one point.
0: Well, that's exactly Uh, the point I was making is that if you consider the appointment process to be uh, right. you know, not all that. Sure. But now let me based. make it the countervailing point to the, the, uh, the complicating a point.
1: Residents alone don't promote you. The Senate has to go along and it's the product of a staggered election system, the last three electoral cycles. And now you see why the framers structured the thing the way they did to limit the ability of of just a president unilaterally to reward pro-presidential judges or one party to just reward pro-party judges with promotions.
0: Yeah, but, you know, I would say that she's already guaranteed that she would never be be confirmed by a Democratic Senate uh, for any Mm -hmm. higher position. And therefore, her only hope for promotion is a Republican Senate. And if you consider the Republican Senate, which... Maybe you don't, but if you consider them craven, then then uh, then her her means to promotion, given the, her past, you know, questionable competence, right. is, is biased. I,
1: I think we have to. Yeah, I think we again yeah, now comes to trust, but now the shoes on the other foot. You see, mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, Republicans have to learn to trust Democrats more. Democrats have to learn to trust Republicans more. And at the end of the day, we all have to trust the elections um and they're imperfect and they can result in outcomes that we absolutely hate but at the end of the day truthfully people are getting a lot of information about donald trump they're getting a lot just because the in, the indictment was unsealed and they can see things with their own eyes and if seeing is bleeding you, you see a photograph of, 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 of boxes with um all sorts of um classified information mixed up with newspapers paper. Yeah. Or in boxes in, in, in bathrooms. Okay. So, so, and at the end of the day, Andy, you know, voters get to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, And if, and if voters are deciding to do this, you know, then we've got big problems in America, but, but that's our system that voters decide. And, and so I just don't want to in advance, just demonize an election just because, you know, my side lost.
0: Fair enough. And I would say that, that we we're not we're prepared to you know wait and see at some level, but I would say that, and I was getting at this earlier, but didn't quite say it, that Republicans, you have an obligation to keep an open mind about the about the uh, the process, and if as Professor Mar is saying, the the Democratic administration that's in power in, in the white in the White House, the executive branch now, has behaved as straight shooters in this process, and if they continue to do so, then you can't go around, I mean, you can, but you shouldn't, go around shouting illegitimate, abuse of power, blah, 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 unless there actually is an abuse of power. And, and so you have to give them a chance to do the right thing. And so far, in Professor Omar's opinion, I happen to agree, they have done the right thing. So, so you know, if we're going to wait and see about the judge, you've got to wait and see about the process, uh, is what I would say. I mean, you don't have to, but you should. Um, if you listen to this podcast, I think that means that you're interested in fair-minded approach to things. So good for you, and uh, you know, you, you do it too. Okay, so um so that's enough about the judge, I think. But I would say that you know there's there's a couple more issues that we want to cover and which we' we're, we're not going to be able to cover at all in this podcast. So let me just lay it out for you, uh, audience, for some things that we're interested in talking about. So we're interested in talking next about, the witnesses that appear to be important in the trial. And that would include attorneys and therefore it brings up issues of attorney client privilege. Which we're going to get into a little bit more, maybe about the Nixon case, Nixon tapes case about uh, Donald Trump's difficulty in hiring attorneys. Actually this morning, as we've been recording this, he just hired two more attorneys while we've been recording. this, <laughs> um, And, um, the, uh, and if we and if we uh, go on for a few minutes longer, he will
1: have fired them. Yes, indeed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or they will have quit. <laughs> uh, but, or God forbid, no, been good, indicted.
0: Good one. Um, we also want to talk about the wisdom of indicting an ex president. We've talked about it. You know, if you if you, you know catch the, if you uh, you know go after the king, you have to kill him. Um, we've said. Is that uh, so? How does this fall under that standard, um, among others and other standards? But to end this podcast today, I just want to get into the another issue related to the judge, which is let's say that this is a bad judge, okay, for argument's sake. Now earlier the judge. And by issued, that,
1: let's even just say in,
0: you know, incorrect, not yeah, evil, not, not biased, just, right. you know, not, yeah, not up to the, not up to it, like you were talking about. Um, you know, it doesn't really have the experience classified documents and therefore is making some misjudgments as opposed to, you know, corrupt or, or evil judges judgments. Um, so postulating that how much damage can that, can the judge do? Someone might say, well, Look, before she issued a bad ruling, but it went to the appellate division, no harm done. Um, so is that the case um, here, or is it a little bit different now that we're in the in the trial circumstance?
1: Oh, there are going to be so many things that the judge will rule on that are, as a practical matter, insulated from review and reversal. Um, so let me just identify... Uh, several. It's already been widely discussed in the media that the particular timetable, you know, of the trial, the the discovery when you're going to actually, you know, insist on this set of motions and that set of motions and when you're going to begin jury selection, all the rest. That's very much in the discretion of the judge. In part, it's connected to the judge's other cases and and, and all the rest. And um, it's it's not quite a, a pure legal standard to be applied, it's going to be very hard for an appellate court to say you're, you're moving too slow. As a practical matter that uh, that's connected to election timing and how it connects to trial timing, let's talk about ruling uh, against the prosecution. The prosecution wants to bring in certain evidence. And you say, oh, no, you can't because it's uh, covered by attorney client privilege or something. And the prosecutor says, no, there's an exception because the attorney here was participating in a crime. And, and we'll, we've talked about it before, but, um, there's a certain thing called the crime fraud exception to attorney client privilege. And I wrote about this long ago because I said, um, in the Nixon tapes case, because I think there's a crime fraud exception to executive privilege, just like there's a crime fraud exception to, um, attorney client privilege. But, um, so the government, um, wants to bring in Evidence from a past Trump attorney. Let's call him Evan Corcoran. And he was, is in the room with the president and, and he's got the good. He's the John Dean in this situation. And if you don't, if you don't allow the prosecution to bring in that evidence, how are you going to prove conspiracy or obstruction? And it's, it's smoking gun. It's compelling. But if a trial judge says, I'm not going to allow that to be admitted. It's not altogether clear that you can easily appeal that evidentiary ruling. You, maybe you could, but that's going to be a, a difficult thing to do at trial. If you make some sort of ruling in the middle of the trial about whether something is admissible or not, you, you're going to stop the trial um, and, and take an appeal and, and tell not? the jury to come back in three weeks. Why uh, not? So, well, uh, because the, uh, the rules of appellate review in general don't permit that absent the most egregious of circumstances in which you could talk about the All Writs Act and mandamus and, and extraordinary review and all the rest. Jury selection. Okay, you. We talked earlier about peremptory challenges and all the rest. You, you, you get one person on the jury who's gonna, you uh, know, vote for acquittal, come hell or high water, no matter what. Well, given that you need unanimity, and oh, it's going to be very hard or an appellate court to actually try to um, review that before the trial. And once the trial has, has happened and it results in a, a hung jury or something, well, maybe you could have a retrial if it's just a a, a hung jury. Here are other things. There, there are rulings that are pro defendant that are clearly based on legal error and that as a practical matter, um, nevertheless, under current double jeopardy doctrine, um, uh, end the case, even if it's, they're based on legal error in the view of the Court of Appeals. Could you give me um, an example? I've criti- yes, I've criticized all of this in an article that I wrote called Double Jeopardy Made Simple. Double Jeopardy Law Made Simple. I don't think that a, a legal error on the part of a judge um, should preclude a review and and reversal and, and then retrial. Um, so there's a statute. The prosecution says it means x and the defendant did x and so we want to go to trial and let's it, imagine it's in the middle of the trial and the judge says you know i've now looked at the statute i decide it doesn't cover x okay and therefore since x is what you're going to prove and the statute doesn't cover x um, i order an acquittal now even if that's clearly based on a mistake of law in the eyes of the appellate court. Current double jeopardy doctrine says that's an acquittal jeopardy is attached. You can't undo it. It's as if the jury acquitted. And, and once a jury quits, by the way, let's imagine um, that you were able to so stack the jury to, to get 12 people to acquit. It doesn't matter if you made, you know, egregious mistakes um, in picking the jury. Um, an acquittal is an acquittal is an acquittal. And that's a double jeopardy bar so lots and lots of things that a trial judge can do that as a practical matter
0: are immune from appellate um, oversight and correction. Okay, well, so there you have it, audience. First of all, we say, well, yeah, she's not, you know, the greatest, but it gives it, it gives us legitimacy, so, you know, it's not so bad, and maybe we didn't say it, but maybe we think uh, she'll bend over backwards to be fair to both sides because she was so uh, damaged by previous not, you know, knocks down from the appellate division. But anyway, now we're saying, well, but actually she can do a lot of damage. So (laughs) again,
1: need not be corruption, bias, bad character. I'm going to now be brutally honest. There's a lot of law and no one can know it all. You can't be an expert in everything. And most trial judges, Aren't experts on any particular thing. They they learn um, on the job. They do their 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 best. Um, but if you if you don't know the stuff, um, then a real issue. Um, and I had some real concerns last time around about whether she knew her stuff. So what do you do? I'll be blunt too. You actually. Listen to legal experts. You learn the literature. You pay attention to um, this is not ex parte. What I'm saying here, it's open to the world to, to um, you know people saying stuff in podcasts um, who have credibility. Because um, what you need to do to be a great judge is not to know you know the answer to everything, but at least to know who might actually have the answer and listen to them if they have genuine expertise. Read their scholarship and not just yours truly, but but obviously uh, 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 others as well. That's what a good judge does because the good judge knows his or her limitations there's that uh, clint eastwood line a man's got to know his limitations the really good judges have that kind of socratic wisdom and when they make a mistake they learn from that if they're really great judges they learn from other people's mistakes but they they're looking to actually learn from genuine experts and and some of the genuine experts you see we have life tenure too and at our best so so final point
0: so Notice the what? switch from the third person to the first person plural there. That instead of "you have talked to the experts," now it's uh-huh. "we have the." Okay, <laughs> yes, we in the academy,
1: we have life tenure. So, and we can abuse it too. We can be kind of corrupt and biased. What's the theory of the Constitution here? What's the Constitution's theory about kind of incentives? So the Constitution presupposes that people do care about money. Um, and so they, they try to eliminate or at least minimize the ability of the legislature, for example, to punish a judge by docking their salary if the judge rules against the government. Okay, And that's part of what judicial independence is all about. Um, now, that's imperfect because there's inflation and salaries can be increased um, or not, and you can dangle before uh, the, the judge um, the possibility of getting an increase if they play ball and do the right way. But but so it's imperfect. But you they they just weren't easily able. They didn't have a, an elaborate cost of living adjustment bureaucracy. Um, if they had, if they had had that in place, and that people talked about could we peg something to the price of wheat or something like that, but but they didn't really quite have the, the technology, frankly. The uh, bureaucratic economic technology to do that, but I think the the spirit might have been actually you sh- we shouldn't you shouldn't be rewarded for a, a pro government ruling or punished for an anti government ruling, but the implementation that was imperfect. And yeah, just look um, at the Fugitive Slave Act. Salary can be Act. decreased,
0: but it can be increased. Just look at the Fugitive Slave Act. You get ten dollars for ruling you know ruling one way and five dollars for ruling another way. Um. So. Uh, just so. Uh, um, uh, 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 but um, so the, the
1: Constitution is assuming it's kind of a realistic document that people care about money. It's assuming that people care about their position. So uh, life tenure, you can't be, you know, um, axed. Okay, so these are components of judicial independence, undiminishable salary, life tenure. The flip side is also, oh, we actually think you you care about your reputation, and you can be impeached for misbehavior and, and that will stain your honor and your reputation and, um, and, and not only be, can you be removed, but disqualified and that you might care about your reputation. Cause you're, um, um, and, and, and you might be motivated by an oath because you've taken an oath and oaths are used pervasively in the Constitution. It's in the Supremacy Clause and under oath. Okay. Oaths appear. Throughout the Constitution, special rules about oath breakers in the 14th Amendment, Section 3, you know, which is all about people who've broken their oaths and they can be disqualified from f- future office holding. So the Constitution presupposes that people are the, um, care about money, care about their position and provides, for example, for payment of, of congressional personnel because people care about money. Present salary can't be increased or decreased because it's only for a four year period. There's not going to be as much inflation over four years. As for life tenure position over there, you said they care about money, care about position, they care, they pay attention to oaths and honor. What motivates people? Constitution is actually very interested in in that. What motivates the judge, once you have undiminishable salary, once you have life tenure, partly it's your reputation. And reputation among whom? And I think for the best judges, it's your reputation among other judges, um, on your court and higher courts. Your reputation with the lawyers who practice before you, whether they think you're good or not. Uh, your reputation with jurors who, if you're a trial judge, who are serving in the, in the courtroom with you. Your reputation more generally in the scholarly community. What I've said on this podcast you know, several times is the academics judge the judges. Higher courts judge lower courts. Supreme Court justices judge higher courts, academics judge the judges and the justices, and history judges us all. You know, that's actually the the ecosystem. And, and so a good judge actually should pay attention to good academics. And good academics should actually be like good judges and try to play it straight, which is what I try to do on this podcast.
0: And speaking of history, uh, judgment of history is about to be rendered on... On uh, Donald Trump beginning today when he is arraigned. Uh, so this is about Richard
1: Nixon and the day he dies and our friend Bob Woodward, who's been on the podcast. So Richard Nixon has died and and people are the talking heads are talking on the television and I'm shrieking at the television. And Venita asked me, why are you why are you yelling? I said, here's the problem. Richard Nixon did all sorts of bad things. But Americans need to be told that he did bad things because he's actually she should be countable to history. And the day you die is a day when people actually often take stock of of your life. And so we should be talking about the bad things that Richard Nixon did so that other people won't do them so that Americans will remember, you know, because we just don't have much of a historical memory. But the problem is, you know who wants to go uh, on TV the day someone dies and say nasty things about them? You know you don't don't say bad things about the dead. And so you know, Bob Woodward, for example, he's just too nice a guy to want to go you know volunteer for this sort of thing. Maybe Carl Bernstein's got a little bit uh, harder edge to him, but but you know, so this is bad because Nixon did bad things, and we're going to forget that, and then someone's going to do it again, and that's why, you know, I'm shrieking, because Americans have no history historical memory, And when he looks at me, she says, "My love." That might all be true, but you know, the TV can't hear you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, more on this uh, in the coming weeks, no doubt. Um, got a, a lot coming up uh, because there'll be a lot of Supreme Court opinions coming down, and no doubt there'll be many more developments in the uh, in the Trump uh, legal dossier. So, okay, until next week thanks good to be back. back welcome back thank you